0: Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Kevin McDonald here, executive producer of New Mexico in Focus. It's Friday, February 14th. Hope you're having a fabulous week. It has been a jam-packed week for us here at the show. We've spent a lot of time up in Santa Fe for American Indian Day at the Roundhouse. We also talked about pension reform in our Your New Mexico Government segment for the week. And we wanna kick things off with some news that we broke here at the station last weekend, over the weekend. This is about these forever chemicals called PFAS, which if you followed our show, you know they have been found in and around Cannon and Holloman Air Force bases, have been tied to this firefighting foam they use for uh, putting out fires on the bases. They've been found to have seeped into the groundwater. They're called forever chemicals because you can't get rid of them. Once they're there, they're there. Can't dilute them with water once you're in their system. They can't be broken down. They're just with you. And last weekend, the uh, water customers in Clovis, the city of Clovis in eastern New Mexico, got letters from the water company there, Epcor, that they had found trace amounts of these PFAS chemicals in the city water system. Again, it was small amounts, and Epcor says the water, drinking water, is still safe. They did shut down the wells that they found it in, which was less than about 10 percent of all their wells, they say, but um, brings up a lot of questions. And our land correspondent, Laura Paskus, has been on this story since these PFAS chemicals were identified and found in the groundwater around Cannon and Holloman Air Force Base. This week, she sits down with the Environment Department Secretary, James Kenney, and the Water uh, Division lead uh, as well for the Environment Department to talk about exactly what EPCOR found what it means and whether or not they think it is tied to this contamination around Cannon and Holloman Air Force bases, as well as what can be done about it. So for now, let's turn it over to Laura Paskus with an Our Land Special Investigation with Environment Secretary, James Kinney.
1: Secretary James Kenny, thank you for joining us today.
2: No problem. Thank you for having me.
1: So this weekend, water customers in Clovis received a letter. Can you describe for the audience what that letter said and kind of what it means?
2: Sure. Um, the letter that EPCOR, who's the, the, the water provider, um, indicated that they had found some number of their wells. I believe it's less than 10% had um, elevated levels of PFAS, that's the per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, um, which we should probably just call PFAS for ease of reference. Um, But those chemicals were found in in some of their drinking water wells. um, And that's what the letter explains to residents and that it's below EPA health advisory levels. The significance of that letter for the people of Clovis, for the state of New Mexico, is that it's the first time we're seeing those chemicals that were in the groundwater now in the drinking water supply.
1: So we know about the contamination from Cannon Air Force Base. Um, That's been an issue for almost two years now, or longer than that, I guess. Is that where this PFAS is coming from? What do we know at this point?
2: that that's a great question and and you know since i've been in this position we've always moved from a decision point or speaking from a place of science and what we know now is some facts and the facts are that canon has used those aqueous firefighting foams um those have migrated into the groundwater uh now we're seeing those PFAS chemicals that are in those aqueous firefighting foams we're seeing those in the drinking water so while we haven't done a forensic analysis to see if it's the same chemical the likelihood in my opinion is that it's moving in that direction the plume is moving in that direction the groundwater is moving in that direction and that might be what we're seeing
1: can we talk a little bit about what pfos are and um, where they come from what they've been linked to what some of the concerns about their presence
2: yeah, so PFAS chemicals are the, they're fluorinated chemicals. And while that may not matter all that much, I'm just saying that because it's a really strong chemical bond. That's why I'm saying that. Um, but those chemicals are man-made. They're synthetic chemicals uh, not found in nature normally. And the, they are used in many applications. So at the Air Force Base, you, or in even airports, they're used to put out um, fire uh, fires that may come through training or through um accidents but you might find them in carpet fibers you might find them on your technical clothing and ski wax so they might be already in people's cookware and things like that um they tend to be more locked down in those 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 uh, applications it's when they're free to move in the environment that's when we're concerned with them so when they're spilled or released or placed into the environment that's when they can cause a little bit more problems. Um, they build up in your body. Uh, they're, they're known as forever chemicals because they don't decompose or bio um, you know metabolize out of your body very quickly. Uh, and they've been linked to all sorts of things from um, high blood pressure and high cholesterol to pregnancy complications to testicular cancer in men um, and other types of cancers. So they're not well studied, but there's enough studies out there to show that they're not good to have in your drinking water.
1: Can you talk a little bit about more about this idea of them as a forever chemical? We also hear um, a lot, of emerging contaminant, and also that they bioaccumulate. Can you help me understand what that means?
2: Sure. When you drink water contaminated with PFAS, you ingest it, and it be, it, it stays in your body. It doesn't metabolize out of your body, meaning um, through the sort of the, the cadence of your own biorhythms, you know, you, you excrete these chemi- some chemicals. This one tends to accumulate in your bloodstream.
1: The federal government, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has set this 70 parts per trillion lifetime health advisory. Can you describe for us what the difference between a lifetime health advisory is and like a regulatory limit and how that affects
3: state agencies like the Environment Department? That's a great question. So I'll start with the regulatory side of it, what we're most accustomed to in the, in the regulatory agency like the New Mexico Environment Department and the public water systems that deliver water to so many um, in our state. We're used to a regulatory landscape that sets out, based on science, a maximum contaminant level that if water has that contaminant in it at the maximum level or less, it's believed to be um, protective of human health And those are set through regulatory processes with public comment and review at the federal level and then adopted by states like ours to then impose those requirements on the public water systems that serve our communities every day. On the flip side of that, where we have emerging contaminants that have not yet had that regulatory process play out, uh, we don't have a maximum level that is regulated for these systems so uh, as we look at the uh, the facts and the situation in clovis and we're working um, as closely as possible with epcor who's serving those customers um, we aren't approaching it from a regulator role right now because these are contaminants in the water that are not subject to our regulatory program so we're working outside of that realm and trying to make sure that we're doing everything that we can with the science that we know and the resources available to us to address it so it seems to me like the state is kind of
1: in this situation where there was contamination from the air force activities at these two bases and the state tried to find a way to compel the air force to clean up these contaminants and in response the air force basically filed a lawsuit against the state kind of challenging the state's authority to be able to do that. And now there's contaminants in a drinking water system for what, and there's no regulatory threshold for these contaminants. So as a regulatory agency, how are you
3: able to best protect public health and the environment kind of with these restrictions? It's a great question. And in short, we're using all the tools that we have in our toolbox. Um, you, you mentioned that we've been trying to have the Department of Defense be held accountable. We are, that is an ongoing effort. We can, are continuing to, to push for that and continuing to try and um, move through litigation and other means to make sure that the Department of Defense is doing what they need to be doing in our communities in new mexico near and and on these uh, air force bases to address this problem so that's ongoing we're using our legal tools we're using regulatory program tools that are outside of the drinking water program Um, and and then beyond that we're using our resources through partnerships with other states other experts who are also trying to tackle this issue this is not unique to new mexico we have our own um, our own issues kind of going on here but we are actively working to see how is the science evolving how are other states working to tackle this keeping very close tabs on how the federal government is looking at this so we're using our expertise we're using our resources in that respect and we're drawing on resources in the state as well to make sure that we're closely collaborating with other state agencies who are involved and um, at the table with us and and on the front lines trying to address this including the Department of Health, the Department of Agriculture and so we're really trying to make sure that we're thinking creatively, we're being innovative and we're not just limiting ourselves to the regulatory tools that we have which are so critically important but again for these emerging contaminants it can't end there.
1: I feel like we're constantly inundated with learning about different chemicals and things that are bad for us or um, happening around us that we should be worried about. What would you like people to understand kind of the balance between, hey, we've really got to pay attention to these things and knowing that your water is safe and this isn't something you should panic about.
2: Yeah, I think I would like people to understand that this administration, this department, along with my sister departments, whether it's Ag or Department of Health, You know, this is something we talk about on a daily basis, and then it's not just something we talk about. It's something we're taking action on. We've moved with our litigation. We've worked with those particular stakeholders who are affected, so city, county, ag industry. Um, We've tried to work with the Department of Defense. Um, So we're doing everything that we can to leverage a better outcome in the short-term, we're going to continue to do that. I anticipate that I'll be in Clovis as soon as our legislative session ends to have these kinds of conversations in in the community. Um, after that, we're going to continue our long-term goal of trying to make sure that we get remediation. We get, um, well, first we get the plume delineated, meaning we map it. And then secondly, we get um, remediation happening. And then third, if you know, there's a lot of infrastructure going into um, eastern New Mexico for water purposes, and we need to contemplate what's the long-term goal? How do we take the investments we're making in eastern New Mexico and turn that into a viable solution for long-term, high-quality drinking water?
1: And if people do have concerns, if they receive the letter in Clovis, or they're worried about PFAS in their drinking water, who should they contact, or what should they be doing?
2: I think first and foremost, um, if people have concerns about their drinking water, they should definitely reach out to EPCOR. Um, EPCOR has been helpful in in disclosing information, in testing the water. Remember there's no law requiring the testing for PFAS and EPCOR has been doing that. Um, Beyond that, the state itself, um, they should reach out to our Department of Health or the Environment Department for additional information. Um, I think you'll see more from us on water conservation efforts, um, how to make sure that if you, if you have doubts who you could go to in terms of an independent test. Uh, the, the legislature here in New Mexico, along with the executive side of government, the cabinet agencies are working to put money into a bill that we could go out and make sure that we're testing both public water, private water. SO there's, THERE'S GOING TO BE A LOT MORE FOCUS ON, on CLOVIS, um, ENSURING THAT PEOPLE ARE FIRST FEELING CONFIDENT ABOUT THEIR WATER, AND THEN SECOND, HELPING THEM GET EDUCATED ON WHAT ELSE THEY COULD BE DOING.
4: WE'LL HAVE MUCH MORE ON THE IMPACTS OF PFAS CONTAMINATION IN AND AROUND Holloman AND CANNON AIR FORCE BASES IN THE COMING WEEKS AND MONTHS. WE'RE PARTNERING WITH THE TEAM AT FRONTLINE TO GET YOU ANSWERS ON JUST HOW BAD THAT CONTAMINATION IS AND WHAT'S BEING DONE ABOUT IT. Back.
0: it's an issue we've been following throughout the legislative session, one of the most emotional issues and also one that seems to have been on the fast track from the get-go. That's the red flag bill or the extreme risk protection order. And this is that law that would allow uh, law enforcement to file a restraining order to take someone's firearm away from them if a judge determines that person is an imminent violent threat to themselves or others. Of course, Second Amendment advocates have seen this as a violation of their constitutional rights. There are 16 other states, 17 other states, along with the District of Columbia, that already have uh, versions of this law on their books. And it really flew through the legislative session. This week uh, was after one committee hearing, it went to the full House floor and not surprisingly passed through as it had passed through there last year. And the line panel kicks things off this week by talking about the process as well as the bill itself and how everyone sees this playing out once it gets to the governor's desk and she signs it.
4: Back at the Roundhouse this week, a lot of attention is still focused on the so-called red flag bill. This measure would allow a judge to take away a person's firearm if they are determined to be an imminent threat to themselves or others. The measure already passed the full Senate is flying through the House this week. But not without a lot of gnashing of teeth, especially by Republican lawmakers. They've expressed frustration with how they perceive the bill as being rushed through the legislative process. Joining us this week to discuss those concerns are line panelists, starting with regular and local attorney Sophie Martin. Another regular back with us this week is Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. Giovanna Rossi is also with us this week. She's president and owner of Collective Action Strategies and hosts the Well Woman Show on KUNM Radio. And we welcome back Ed Perea. He's a lawyer and public safety analyst. Great to have you all here this week. Now this bill, Senate Bill 5, an emotionally charged proposal supporters say is an effective tool to prevent violence and even suicides, but opponents see it as a violation of the Second Amendment, pure and simple. And 30 of the 33 sheriffs have already come out against it but the idea of the bill is only part of the controversy. Also at issue is how the measure has been handled by the legislature. It passed through the Senate last week, but was given only one committee assignment in the House It appears to be on the fast track to becoming law and sophie Mm -hmm. uh, as we tape this we know that it is on the docket for the house floor today later today that could mean tonight who knows when So you may
5: be watching this and like yeah this is already done
4: that's exactly right thank you for that and house speaker brian egavoli has signed the bill to the public affairs committee not judiciary because he says the house passed the bill last year i'm interested in your that particular point about judiciary not having a cut at this even though there are lots of amendments that make it far different from the bill last year. What's your sense of that? There
5: are amendments that have been made, and and Mm -hmm. some of them seem fairly significant, but but I think that um, the decision to only refer to one bill, really, sorry, to one uh, committee, Mm -hmm. really reflects (laughs) confidence on the part of the Democratic House members. Democratic leadership, Mm -hmm. that it will go through. I mean, I I think, you know, and and that they want it to. I mean, typically the kind of games we see if you don't want a bill to go through is that you assign it to many, many committees. But here, time is short. Um, There appears to be some consensus that the House will vote to approve this. Damon Ely, for instance, has come out and said he thinks that -hmm. that it's, that it's going to pass through quickly and mm-hmm. that there's not going to be a lot of concern, mm-hmm. at least on the Democratic side, about trying to make additional changes. I mean, I think he said, we expect it to pass as sure. is so that there doesn't need to be reconciliation. So mm-hmm. all of that is to say, we have had some surprises from the legislature this year. We, you know, the, the conventional wisdom was that cannabis would go through and it's been tabled,
6: mm-hmm. it was
5: that the social security, release, you know, releasing the tax on social security would go through, that mm-hmm. hasn't happened. Um, but at least at this point, there's sounds like there's a lot of confidence that this red flag bill Mm -hmm. is a go.
4: Tom, is there a trade here, I'm wondering? I I hear Sophie's point, and a lot of folks would agree with that if they were on the side of passing this law, but something seems to have come up a little bit short for folks who were opposed to this. I'm thinking particularly of uh, public testimony was rather limited. Uh, You know, it just didn't feel like a full and unfettered hearing for this thing has happened. To this so far,
7: Yeah, it definitely appears that the Senate, at least when the bill was over in the Senate and being heard first at public affairs and then uh, primarily public affairs when it was introduced, mm-hmm. you know, they used the entire Senate chamber for people to provide that feedback, provide input, mm-hmm. and it seems as if that was like the two bites of the apple were over in the Senate once it moved right. over into the House. It was like, you know what, our focus is getting this done. Uh, and as a result, I think it was at the expense of public input. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the one great uh, challenge that uh, the legislators have in a 30-day session. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you, you know, provide input Uh, through the committee process, uh, through also by providing a true debate uh, amongst Republicans and Democrats on the bill. Uh, But instead what we've seen, instead of uh, a couple of committees, including judiciary, we just had one. And it was basically now being brought to the floor. And Mm -hmm. so I think that that's, you know, it's more of a sign of partisanship as opposed to making sure that the best bill gets through Mm -hmm. the legislature.
4: Ed, I'm curious your thought on this. Again, a lot of issues at stake here, and I'm going to take the side here. Uh, for uh, devil's advocate, for the sheriffs, it, it just seems to me the sheriffs just didn't get a fair, full hearing here. It just, it just didn't feel in my gut that they were really heard here. Maybe on purpose. Who knows? But you know, yeah,
8: I agree with I agree with Tom. This bill is looking more partisan. Like and, and this it, it can't be partisan, this is such an important issue, and I get it. I understand the need to do something sure. about the violence and these mass shootings that we've seen across the country and, mm-hmm. and in some of our local neighborhoods. But we want to be careful that we don't put the cart before the cor- before the horse. I mean mm-hmm. we want to make sure we take our time and think this thing through there are a lot of gaps still that remain as far as the bill is concerned, some safeguards that need to be put in place. Because right. we really can't play around with our Constitution. I mean, there is a Second Amendment right, and I get it, sure. but there are some things that maybe we can do to ensure that, that the Second Amendment is protected. Uh, in the same token, come up with some reasonable laws that are going to ensure increase the safety of our community. Right. I don't think the bill in its present form is there yet. I think there has to be a little more thought that goes into it. I mean there's some liability issues. A judge can make a decision, remove a gun, the courts and the judges are immune from liability. Right. Law enforcement isn't. So right. how is law enforcement gonna approach these situations where they know if they make the wrong decision they may be liable for, for damages, and so
4: right. that's going to really... Can that really be hashed out in, on, on a floor hearing on, in the, on the House t- side today? I mean, that liability issue seems like a very important deal for a lot of people. I, I can see the ramifications of sheriffs going, you know what, I'm just not going to touch this thing. That's right. You know what I mean? It just, it just seems obvious if they're, if they're going to be liable.
8: Liability mm-hmm. is one piece, but there are other issues there that really need to be thought through. Yeah. You know, currently, most law enforcement officers already have tools to deal with these types of situations often if they're on site and they're dealing with a potentially dangerous situation involving a firearm or someone who is threatening the use of the firearm, mm-hmm. in some cases that firearm can already be removed by law enforcement at that moment mm-hmm. and put into safekeeping just to protect that individual. So, okay. law enforcement officers have been doing this for years, for decades, and handling it differently without the law, but once you put a law in place, you want to be, again, very careful and make sure that there are clear safeguards in there you place. Go. So much more to talk about on this on this yeah. issue because I'm not even sure that there's a strong correlation between this red flag bill and the potential violence. I'd like to see more study on that.
4: Gotcha. Giovanna, um, 17 okay. states including the District of Columbia have passed red flag laws. Polling here in New Mexico are very firmly in favor of red flag laws. So at the end of the day, does the does the process stuff really matter if this is right. really, you know. Well,
9: yeah, I mean, listening to the comments, it's, it's like, you know, the, we want to create a good public policy, you know, and at the same time, we have seen this bill in 17 other states and and D.C., and and we've seen bipartisan support in other states, Mm -hmm. so the fact, the idea that this is just a partisan issue is is really um, unique to New Mexico Mm -hmm. um, because we've seen bipartisan support in other areas, Mm -hmm. so I don't think that we... um, Need to worry so much about waiting and uh, taking more time and all of that. We've taken a lot of time already, and we've seen more and more uh, gun violence. Now, is this bill the answer to gun violence? No, right. It, mm-hmm. It's it's making a statement. It's making maybe a difference, um, but for sure, it's making a statement uh, about you know, the um, the need to do something. Right. I think there are deeper issues, as was brought up, um, mm-hmm. and and those issues really need to be looked at. So, you know, we can look at this kind of Band-Aid approach that is very controversial, um, mm-hmm. and or we could do some something really bold mm-hmm. and look at some of the root causes of gun violence and look at who are are, who are the people that are, are doing this, and what are what are their needs, and right. what's going on here?
4: That was a big missing part of the debate, it seemed to me as well, is that you could see people hinting at that or trying to get that into the conversation. That mm-hmm. if you really want to make this really work, you got to make it much more holistic and bring in the mental health help issues into this. And
9: right, so know, there is it's that. Not just yeah, a red flag there is glob. that. But they're mm-hmm. starting somewhere, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's, we need to do something um, to to again to kind of make a statement to to mm-hmm. to make people feel like this is important. Right. Um, and so I think for, for a lot of people it's, you know, whether or not it, it does exactly what it needs to do, it, it's making a statement that people really need
4: mm-hmm.
9: um, to see in mm-hmm. terms of addressing gun violence.
4: Interesting. Just for perspective, we did have uh, background checks passed recently. It went into effect. The, the world didn't fall apart. The hole whole didn't open up in the ground. We didn't fall in it. It seemed to have been okay. We'll see what happens with this, especially in the House. That's all the time we have for that topic. So to come on the line, we dive into proposed changes within the Children, Youth, and Families Department.
0: Next up, we look at pension reform efforts within the legislature this year. The Public Employee Retirement Association, otherwise known as PARA, is facing a real solvency dilemma. Right now, the, the program's about $7 billion in the hole. That's no small number when you think about the fact that's basically the entire state budget for this year. So lawmakers know something needs to be done. It's not decisions that anybody wants to make. But the focus for lawmakers is making sure the benefits are there. It's likely going to mean that employees have to pay more into that pension program as well as their employers. But lawmakers are looking at the best way to make those changes. And there is a plan afoot. In the legislature this year, there is a plan afoot that would bring the program to solvency in about 20 years. So our New Mexico government project correspondent, Gwyneth Dolan, ventured up to the Roundhouse this week to find out more about what that program entails, as well as a new retirement program for people who don't have the luxury of a state program currently. These are nonprofit employees or self-employed. There's a new plan in place to help them with a a version of a 401k that could be run through the state. So there's lots more about that in here as well. Here's Gwyneth Dolan.
4: NMIF correspondent Gwyneth Dolan also spent some time in Santa Fe this week, checking in on the progress on plans to reform the state's failing public employee pension program. It's all part of our Your New Mexico Government project, a collaboration with KUNM Radio and The Santa Fe Reporter.
10: Representative Anderson, the Public Employees Pension Fund is in a hole about as deep as this year's state budget, $7 billion. How do we get out of that hole?
11: Well, I think it's going to take leadership from both the legislature and the executive. Our governor had a task force that served through the summer, did great work. I served on the Investment and Pensions Oversight Committee along with several members of the Senate and the House out of all that has emerged a bill which I believe is going to set New Mexico on a course to solvency in its public pensions
10: okay so where exactly is all that money going to
6: come from
11: well that money comes from different sources one is the general fund surplus that we're all aware of in this coming fiscal year, the second will be an employer contribution, the third will be an employee contribution. All of that is going to add up to bringing our solvency deficit to a break even, to 100% funding, that being a break even. And that's our objective and we should get there in about 20, 25 years.
10: So right now, the retirement board, PARA, grants a cost of living adjustment. But that's going to change. How?
11: Well, it's going to change for a three starting on a three-year moratorium when the colas will not be funded. However, House Bill Two has 70 million dollars, which replaces that funding, and the pensioners will receive a 13th check for the next three years for their COA, their lost cola.
10: And then. that cost of living increase will be changed. The way we calculate it is going to change.
11: Going forward, it's going to uh, be a recalculation and good years will be good years on COLA and bad years will be less good years or uh, low COLA years. And protected in there are our state employees who are on pensions at the lower end of the pension range. And those COLAs will be especially protected.
12: let's talk about what the issue is, right? People are living longer, and because of that, they're taking more money out of the system than they sometimes even put in by working the span of time that they did. Uh, Back when these pension systems were first put into place in, say, the 30s or 40s, people lived a certain amount of time uh, after they worked and then passed away. Well, now people are living longer and yet working the same amount of time. So when you look at what money's going in versus what money's going out, there's a lot more on the back end than there used to be. And that's why it's important that places around the country, not just New Mexico, look at ways of changing the systems to secure a pension. And that's what we're trying to do here.
10: And that's not the only risk, right? The-
12: it's not. So when the state borrows money to do things like construct new roads or new libraries or new schools, we borrow just like you borrow money to get a house and we pay an interest rate on that it's called a credit rating and the better or excuse me it's called a bond rating so like you're in my credit rating the higher your bond rating is the less money you have to pay out to get that money if your bond rating shrinks just like if you're in my credit rating shrinks it costs you more to borrow money that bond rating is determined based on risk so if we don't do what we can to make this pension system more solvent, more, uh, less risky over time, that means there's a chance that our bond rating could go down, which is gonna cost you and me and every other taxpayer more dollars when we wanna make a new school, when we wanna make a new road, that sort of thing. And that's really, really important to make sure that we have the infrastructure needed going forward. I know there's two different things, but the agencies that are making these determinations have in the past decreased bond ratings for other states that didn't do the right thing and make these things solid over time.
10: I wanna ask you about the public employees who are working here now. They're gonna be asked to pay a little bit more. Me too. (laughs) Do they support this?
12: Uh, Yes, so all the unions that we can count support it. That includes AFSCME, the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, the Communication Workers of America, which represent a bunch of people working in the public sector, the International Association of Firefighters, as well as the Albuquerque Police Officers Association. So all of the unions that we know about are actually supporting this because they want to make sure that their members, which are the current employees, have a system that is protected and defined moving into the future. And that's really important to them. It's really important to the governor. It's really important to everybody.
10: I'm here with Representative Christine Chandler of Los Alamos talking about a proposal for a new state retirement plan. Representative, the House has approved this proposal already. Why
6: do you want to create a new retirement plan for the state? Well, Gwen, um, at this point in time, we know that over 60% of employees who work for private employers of the state have no re- um, private retirement plan. In addition, We also know that more than 80% of people who are trying to save for for retirement have less than $10,000 saved. So this bill is intended to allow employers to voluntarily participate so that their employees can begin developing the habit of retirement savings. And that's very important for the state because we know we have a high poverty rate and we have a high rate of individuals who are older who are in poverty or just on the edge of poverty. And this is intended to provide them with a tool to plan for retirement. So who would be allowed to participate in this program? Private employers in the state of New Mexico, self-employed individuals, and not-for-profits. So we we know that there are a lot of not-for-profits as well who don't have the wherewithal to offer retirement plans or complex retirement savings plans. So this will help all of the above, and you know, you know, ensure that people who work for those or who are self-employed will have access to a retirement savings plan. But can't they just go sign up with Marilyn Scher Schwab? Yes, they can, and we hope that they do, but this makes it easy for people. When, when you're employed and you just t- are allowed to have, or you can set up an automatic uh, payroll deduction, we know that people are 15 times more likely to participate in a retirement savings plan if it's done through the employer through an automatic deduction. Is it gonna cost the state money to, to set this up? We did have an appropriation in the bill, but in working with the state treasurer's office, who's been fantastic by the way, the state treasurer has been very much on board with this, he has said that he's willing to, to work within his budget at this point in time to, to stand the program up. You know, We may need an appropriation down the road to help support the program, but at this point, the treasurer thinks he can handle it with the monies that he's being appropriated right now.
0: Back now with the Line Opinion Panel. There was an article this week in the Santa Fe New Mexican about some pretty drastic changes within the Children, Youth and Families Department, otherwise known as CYFD. They have new leadership and a new cabinet secretary who is not a lifelong government bureaucrat of sorts. He comes from the nonprofit world in California, although dealing with child welfare issues, child well-being. And that's really where a lot of this change starts in terms of trying to find people who are going to think outside of the bureaucratic box to figure out how we can do a better job here in New Mexico protecting our kids. This also includes the foster care program and a renewed effort to keep foster children with family, with relatives as much as possible, and especially with Native American children where there is an actual law that that has to be the effort up until the last possible moment and so the line panelists talk about these strategies and whether or not they think it will make a difference for a state as you well know that often falls at the very bottom of child well-being rankings.
4: New Mexico continues to rank near the bottom of just about every child well-being list and study. We have high rates of teen suicide, alcohol use, and poverty rates but as the Santa Fe New Mexican reported this week, new leadership and a new outlook at the Children, Youth and Families Department hopes to change all that. According to the article by Steve Jansen, part of the evolution of COAFD has to do with new voices from outside the protective services ecosystem, like Secretary Brian Blaylock, who came to New Mexico from the nonprofit world in California. Giovanna, Blay- Mr. Blaylock has no prior government experience, but, says Governor Michelle Lewis Grisham, it's been a big help in his learning curve. So I'm curious, as a, as a start, is moving away from that institutional thinking a positive step in, in bringing new fresh ideas to the situation?
9: Um, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and as I often bring up on this show, bo- you know, I really like to see bold sure. ideas. Let, let's not just do the same old thing and expect a different um, outcome. Right. So yes, I think bringing in some outside, out of the box thinking on this and, and really the solutions mm-hmm the out of the box solutions are really very um, reasonable. So it, it's not even that, you mm-hmm. know, uh, outrageous of an idea, but I think it's great that um, that this is a priority and that Secretary Blaylock is, is coming up with this, with these different kinds of solutions that will um, hopefully help over the long term. I don't think it's, you know, none of these solutions are like a one shot, like one answer is the That's thing. Right. Um, and certainly, you know, trying to help kids who walk in the door of school without having had breakfast, without having had a safe place to sleep, um, needing to get to work in order to pay for their own food or their family's bills or whatever—these mm-hmm. are really tough issues mm-hmm. that I think we put a lot of responsibility on the school system, the juvenile justice system, mm-hmm. to fix. And so the the fact that he's bringing this big task force. Um, uh, together, or uh, I don't know if he's bringing a task force together, mm-hmm. but the the solutions that he's sure. um, proposing are are interesting and I think more creative.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom, one idea that's been out there for a while, but he seems to be uh, moving uh, ahead with, is the idea of keeping foster kids with family members. Mm-hmm. And as it stands right now, it might shock most folks, right now only 23 percent of our state's foster youth are currently living with a relative. Mm-hmm. And the, st- the science seems pretty clear here that if you want some stability there, a relative of some sort is actually the best way to go. That's a pretty good start there when you see that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, when it
7: comes to foster care, that's probably one of the you know, key touch points that could use a lot of improvement. Yeah. You know, you started off this Segment by talking about getting rid of, you know, changing the institution. Well, in order to change, uh, you know, to get rid of the institutional thinking, you have to get rid of the institution. And sometimes a lot of the, um, you know, employees mm-hmm. are just sitting there waiting for, you know, okay, they're here for, you know, new secretary's here for four years or eight years. Mm-hmm. I'll just kind of wait them out and, you know, kind of see what happens. Right. But, you know, there are a lot of great employees, too. I I'm, I'm, yep. don't want to take that away. But, you know, we've had a couple of different out-of-the-box thinkers, um, you know, Heather Wilson was an out-of-the-box thinker. She mm-hmm. was head of CYFD. Mm-hmm. Monique Jacobson, definitely an out-of-the-box thinker. What I like about Brian Blaylock is, is just that he comes from a nonprofit experience in this particular arena. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the expectation is much greater with him than his predecessors. Gotcha. Uh, and, but I think that the foster care system, having friends who are actually in that space, who are extremely frustrated with it and hearing their stories, I just, my heart breaks, um, you know, for the, for the children that are caught in here. Um, but, uh, you know, when it really comes down to it, though, I just something that Brian Blalock said <clears> is that <throat> they want to support families so that they're able to have better outcomes. Mm. That, to me, is a really good sign.
4: Good point there. You know, Sophie, this, of course, has a legal background in Native American uh, uh, kids not being placed led to a lot of lawsuits out there on this very issue. So, there's other things I want to talk about, but mm-hmm. it, please do touch on this sure, if you would. Sure. Yeah. So,
5: there's a long-standing Indian Child Welfare Act, which actually, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to, mm-hmm. I don't think they've heard on it yet, but I think um, they're certainly expected to to issue a decision on, on the status of that program. But the Indian Child Welfare Act essentially uh, requires that a, a Native American child be placed with Within the Native American community, whether it's with family members or not, kinship guardianship is the is the term that we use to talk about this idea that even if it is necessary to remove a kid from their parents' custody, mm-hmm. um, that there is a there is a value in play, placing them with other kin, or or people who kind of can take on the role right. of kin. Right. But but what we see is um, with the Native American community, there has been a strong preference for and, and law behind the idea that children should not be completely ripped from their mm-hmm. from their um, their environment mm-hmm. and and it is encouraging to see new mexico take that same tag because we we're one of the worst states for that. We yeah. we really don't succeed often in keeping kids within their family structure mm-hmm. and we have the research now that tells us how very damaging that is for the children and we know children who are harmed by the mm-hmm. by the foster care system um, have higher suicide rates. They have lower high school and college graduation rates. They really struggle in in ways that that go beyond the damage that's done from living in a home that is not functional. Mm-hmm. We compound that damage when we take them away completely from their safe environment. What they what they feel is an emotionally right. safe yeah, environment it creates lifelong yeah. trauma yes. Yes. for that
9: right. child. Just just to be taken away, separated from their parent, no matter if it's short. Or long term Mm -hmm. it's created that lifelong trauma so now we're dealing with all of these other
4: you know society will deal with it down the road as that child grows into an adult and one of the things getting to Giovanna's point about out of the box thinking uh, one of the ones that excites me is extending the age from 18 to 21 to be able to be eligible for foster care services and other states have found highly effective in keeping frankly kids out of jail uh, uh, I'm interested in, interested in your thoughts on that. I, I
8: think mm-hmm. that's so important. I think that's a, such a such a wise move. I mean, yeah. You know, why th- this number 18 years of age, and suddenly you think the person's whole life is has, right. has, has changed. That's it's, right. Uh, uh, it, it's about time that we. Put some focus mm-hmm. on on continuing to support those individuals who are most in need. And mm-hmm. what I like about this uh, th- th- this new mm-hmm. philosophy, it sounds like it's a new philosophy. It's reframing and refocusing the issue and providing much needed resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's so important. Again, with the law enforcement background uh... you often see negative outcomes when we traumatize you know children at very young ages especially That's when right. they need it the most yep. uh, but in my practice i have cases in which involve um, children, youth and family uh... but and i have to say that the uh... those that i've uh... worked with uh... do an outstanding job they are compassionate and in most cases they have the best interest of the the children in mind and, but it is a system it is a philosophy <coughs> and of course the leadership uh... is important mm-hmm. because um, the those that uh, the report to the leader to will rise to the level of the leader's expectations. So right. this is a move in the right
4: direction. That's right, Giovanna, Interestingly, this caught my eye too. Is there's policy issues at play here and changing the law that allowed for prosecution for prosecution of sex workers under the age of uh, 18 to be tried for prostitution instead of for treating them as survivors of sex trafficking? The, there's a big difference there. Do you know what I mean? It, instead of criminalizing young women for prostitution we dig a little bit deeper and find out why they're in the business of prostitution in the first place. If it's I
5: can, wait, if I can please, just jump in. Please, please, a a please. child cannot be a prostitute. Okay. A child can be the victim of sex trafficking. Right. A child can be raped. Okay. But a child cannot be a prostitute because she or he is not capable of consent.
4: Gotcha. Good yeah. point there. So mm-hmm. good
5: legal distinction there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
9: <laughs> absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean protecting children and not, <clears throat> pardon, again. Um, I, I mean, I would just you know, <laughs> refer to Sophie's comments there, and, and I don't even remember what your actual are. That's right. Right, right, that's
4: right. There, there, are, there are things in policy that can help this as well. That we're, you know, We stop criminalizing kids, right. either 18, 19 years old, well, or yeah. minors, and, you know, just in general terms. Yeah. And
9: stopping criminalizing kids and also looking at, um, again, the root causes that's of right. why are, you know, why are these things happening right. in the home, and why, why is right. this going on? That's right. And looking at some of the poverty and housing issues and Mm -hmm. access to food and, you know, it's such a bigger system. And so when we try to go in and and look at the problem, like a car, like, let me just go fix that tire and forget about the rest of the car, you know, but we need to look at a holistic, Yep. Solution here. Good
4: point there. And the governor is also seeking 28 million for behavioral health programs to go along with this. That's going to be a big part of this time. will tell if these new changes have an impact and for sure, we will continue to talk about it right here at this table. Still to come how Santa Fe schools are working with COAFD on a new approach to keeping kids in school.
0: All right. It's back up to the roundhouse. Now again, last Friday, February 7th was American Indian day at the Capitol. So, uh, Native American leaders, youth, community members from across the state gathered in the roundhouse to be celebrated and also to issue their list of priorities for lawmakers as they consider all these 600 some plus bills during the legislative session. We heard a lot about environmental protections and sacred site protections, a lot of talk about Chaco Canyon and the oil and gas drilling activity going on up around there. Tribal leaders also talk a lot about what they think lawmakers should be doing for the youth and making sure they have the best chance for success on and off the reservation. So uh, we're lucky to have New Mexico and Focus correspondent, Antonio Gonzalez, who headed up with us to find out about these priorities and a little bit more about relations between the tribes and Pueblos and the state government.
4: Tribal leaders, members of the native community, state officials and lawmakers, RECENTLY CELEBRATED AMERICAN INDIAN DAY, FEBRUARY 7TH AT THE ROUNDHOUSE, GOVERNOR MICHELLE LUJAN Grisham RECOGNIZED THE CONTRIBUTIONS OF THE STATE'S 23 NATIVE AMERICAN NATIONS AS TRIBAL LEADERS TOOK TO THE HOUSE FLOOR TO SPEAK ABOUT PRIORITIES FOR THEIR COMMUNITIES. NMIF CORRESPONDENT ANTONIA GONZALEZ SAYS AT THE TOP OF THE LIST ARE ENVIRONMENTAL PROTECTIONS FOR THE NEXT GENERATION AS WELL AS CULTURAL PRESERVATION AND PROVIDING OPPORTUNITIES FOR YOUNG PEOPLE.
0: Michelle Lujan Hondrish, Governor of the State of New Mexico, do hereby proclaim February 7th, 2020 as American
6: Indian Day
13: throughout the state. The of importance of having an American Indian Day here at the legislature is simply a reminder to the legislatures that really make the rules and the laws and provide some cases a lot of capital infrastructure dollars to our own pueblos, nations and tribes that we have needs that we're here, we have a rich history, and we're looking forward to the future. And so the fact that I'm here as a Native legislator helps to push that agenda along, helps to push that identity along, helps them to better educate themselves as to, again, as a Native American, there's a history, there's a present, and there's a future. And if I can play a part in educating and re-educating my colleagues in the House and the Senate and the executives on what we are about as Native Americans, it, it's all the better, and I think it all goes to the greater good of Native American. Mexico.
14: Why is it important for Zuni Pueblo, for leadership and the tribe, to come here to the New Mexico legislature and speak before state lawmakers on the variety of issues that are important to the tribe?
15: The ability for tribal leadership to be able to interact with our other elected representatives, whether it's a state uh, level or the federal level, is really part of that. what we believe, that trust responsibility, to be a collaborative partner in the development and protection of our people. If you look at the Pueblo history with the state of New Mexico, Essentially, is a Pueblo relationship that allowed the state to become and develop and become what it is today. Without that relationship, there is no way the Spanish government would have survived without Pueblo relationship and collaboration. So our journey here to Santa Fe as, as tribal leaders is, is a time-honored tradition. We're making every effort to
16: give every youth an opportunity to excel. We created a STEM program at the Mesler Apache High School. During that STEM program, the kids are doing stuff like hydronics and they're making food for the elders, planning, but they're um, actually thinking of ways to um, help the tribe understand solar and help the tribe. I think if we do it as a community with our youth, the youth are opening an eye, our eyes. With our youth, where we're actually trying to enhance our language through our youth. and. We got our own language programs, and we're trying to keep, make sure that our culture in New Mexico is, is kept, you know, so that three generations down, they'll still be doing our ceremonies and speaking our language, and that's who we are as New Mexicans. You know, as New Mexicans, if we lose that, the state of New Mexico, we're just gonna be a, a regular person. We're not gonna be tribes. So who we are as Indian people through our youth is gonna keep us going in the future.
14: And can you tell me um, why it's important as a Mescalero Apache, um, just kind of the view of the environment, um, not only for protection but for culture, for way of life, and for your people.
16: A lot of our land out there—that's where we gather our medicine. That's where we gather our our roots. Where people we go to heal. Sometimes, getting out and being alone and praying with Mother Earth—you know, and just praying—and um, it clears your mind. It gets you focused on what it means about being a Native American or being an Apache. Is that's what it does. Is just. We respect it so much.
14: And the theme today focused on the environment and environmental protection. One of the big issues here in New Mexico is protecting Chaco Canyon from um, development. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, why that's important to tribes.
13: It's, it's important to tribes because at its very core it's who we are. It's those ancient stories that were told uh, centuries and centuries ago, since time immemorial, that those are our ancestors. And that as a Native American, I was very much taught by my grandparents and my parents that we respect our ancestors, we respect our elders, and that the part of the Chaco Canyon story is is a fabric upon which I, as a legislator here, am built upon. We've been able to find that harmony. And if we don't stand up and stand up and speak on behalf of those that can't speak for themselves anymore, like our ancestors of Chaco Canyon, like the spirit that is Chaco Canyon or the spirit that is the Rio Grande River or the spirit that is the mountains that are in in back of you, that what are we gonna leave to our own children and those that are yet to come that we have to protect them?
15: The Pueblo Azuni has considered Chaco Canyon and the historic park an integral part of our migration history and a way of life. We consider Chaco to be one of the birthplaces of, of uh, many of the uh, societies and, and uh, prayers and songs that we have have developed over time there. So to say that we're not interested in this area or are re- interested in it as a recent development will be, uh, I guess, in a situation. Uh, a slap in the face to us.
14: The Zuni Pueblo has long fought for environmental issues and sacred site protection. You're famously known for uh, working to protect uh, the the Zuni Salt Lake. Why is it important to protect these type of areas for Zuni Pueblo?
15: The reason we continue to protect uh, certain uh, traditional cultural properties and areas important to Zuni is because they directly link us to our ancestral pilgrimage as well as our way of life. And I refer to our way of life is uh, a lot of the songs that we have, a lot of the prayers that we have, some of those are in bygone languages. Some, some of those songs that, and prayers that we have don't exist in, in, in some form or fashion other than our way of life. And we believe that it is that connection and the rediscovery to these previous places allows us to provide our people that spiritual strength and courage to continue um, our way of life. And as our leaders have said before. What do we do now to make sure and continue uh, preserving um, so that way our kids have what we have today 100 years from now?
0: All right, and last but not least this week, we're back at the line table. There was news this week of uh, a new approach, a new program that's in the works to pilot in Santa Fe schools that would help out with a long-standing problem we have here in New Mexico, schools specifically, and that's truancy. Kids just aren't coming to school and to class as often as they should be, and this new approach is an interesting one. It moves away from punishing, expelling, or suspending a student who misses too much class to really trying to bring resources together to find out what's actually going on, why the student is missing class, and how they can help um, that student be able to make it to class. It could be transportation issues. It can be that they can't get their homework done because the power's not on at their house. It could be that they have to work to help support the family because mom and dad already have jobs that just aren't quite making the bills. And so a lot of different reasons about why these truancy issues happen. And as Sophie Martin will will say in this segment it's a, it's a strange system we've set up in the past where you punish a person for not coming to class by keeping them out of class so we know changes need to be made this is a new approach and the line panelists talk about how successful they think it will be and what else maybe the schools should be thinking about in this area
4: students who miss too many days of school it's a problem that has plagued the center Fe school system for decades But Santa Fe Public Schools are working on a plan they believe will change all that once and for all. They're partnering with CYFD, law enforcement, mental health professionals, and judges on the plan. The goal is to find out exactly why the student is missing school and look for solutions instead of penalties. And Tom, this movement started last year with a new state law that forbids schools from suspending or expelling students for excessive truancy. Uh, Simple first question, is that the right way to go? Is that the best start, just that, that law?
7: Well, it's, mm-hmm. uh, let's see if it works. I mean, okay. since this is the first year, we'll have to be able to see how it really impacts the larger numbers. You know, to Santa Fe uh, Public Schools specifically, Veronica mm-hmm. Garcia, the superintendent there, um, she is uh, very skilled at working with high-risk populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so I'm excited to kind of see what her, you know, some of the things she's already been implementing as far as utilization of, you know, staff is uh, one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, taking it back to where she got a bulk of her experience in APS, um, you know, it's really been somewhat interesting. You know, the Albuquerque Journal, uh, as we were talking off Mm. camera, really has had some very interesting numbers uh, where, you know, the uh, number of -of out-of-school suspensions have increased from 4,000 in 2017 to 7,600 during the 2018-2019 school year and a disproportionate for minority students. So, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot, you know, when you get into the numbers, when you get in the data, there's a lot of stuff in there that says, you know what, a lot of this deserves
4: a closer look. Mm -hmm. That that word why Why is important here. It's complicated why kids are out of school. Sometimes it's mental health issues, family issues. Sometimes it's benign as hunting season. I mean, there's a lot of different things going on there that counts under the umbrella of truancy.
8: You, Gene, you, you hit excellent point. The, the why is probably the most important thing. Yeah. To this question here, I, I turned to my daughter, who, who taught in public school and in private school, is now a PhD candidate uh, in, in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I called her up and said, this may be one of the questions. What do you think? And one of the first things she did is she said, Dad, I'm going to send you a quick poem. And so if, if I could read just very briefly the poem that she sent to me mm-hmm. and then put that in perspective, mm-hmm. The poem starts, I woke myself up because we ain't got an alarm clock.
5: Mm.
8: I dug in the dirty clothes basket because ain't nobody washed my clothes. Brushed my hair and teeth in the dark because the lights aren't on. Even got my baby sister ready because my mama ain't home. Got both of us to school to eat a good meal. Then I got to class and my teacher fussed because I ain't got my pencil. And so we need um, to put a focus sure. on what's important here, right? Yep. It, it has to be, if, if, a, if a child misses school, mm-hmm. it's used, and, and I asked my daughter too, and I look at her as, as my expert, I said, mm-hmm. how important, who, whose responsibility is it? You know, we a lot of times put this responsibility on the student. Right. It's your responsibility, mm-hmm. you That's have right. an obligation. Mm-hmm. And she said, I can see that to a degree. But the system, the policy is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Because we are in the the business as as teachers is to teach those kids how to be a successful, independent, responsible adult. And if we're not doing something to affect that, we're letting the children down and they're likely to be truant because as you said the that's whys are so important and, right. there are, and there are so many whys. Yep. You know from the law enforcement perspective I, I served as a juvenile detective when I worked with APD and I saw I, I dealt with truant students wow. and one of the things that I didn't care much for was when there was an issue of truancy that often administrations would say call the police, we're going to get the police on you. Mm. It can't be punitive. If it is punitive, we're moving in the wrong direction. And I think Santa Fe's uh, proposal hopefully is moving less in a punitive direction and more in a supportive direction with the resources that we see being applied to this.
4: Good uh, points there. It to me to Sophie, another uh, similar point there, another part of the plan is the idea of a potentially creating a specialized magistrate court mm-hmm. uh, to handle truancy cases and you know, work well with other issues like drug courts. Interesting point there. What do you think?
5: Well, I mean, I think it, it, it strikes me as an attempt to... Um we talk about the school to prison pipeline, essentially, right. which is which right. is the idea that we're taking kids to Ed's point. We're taking kids from school, and we're sort of introducing them into the legal system in a in a very negative way, and and that ultimately that may lead to prison. Mm-hmm. The hope is that a court like this, if it if it if it happens, is is that it can take a more nuanced approach to what's happening with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would like to believe, I would like to see the Santa Fe School District and our other school districts reach a point in which that, that court is not necessary because mm-hmm. it, the issues are being dealt with sooner. Right. I continue to struggle with the idea that a kid who doesn't show up for school should be punished by not having them show up for school. That really, <laughs> I struggle with that a whole <laughs> lot. And I think that yeah. to the extent that Santa Fe is looking at the the what's happening before, what's happening after, and, and trying to sort of wrap their arms around this with the assistance of the state and other, other resources, mm-hmm. I think that's super positive. Mm-hmm.
4: Giovanni, you hear a lot of blame the parents out there when you hear about this issue. You know, they should be fined, they should be jailed, they should be, you know, whatever. There's an idea out there that a petty misdemeanor for a, a truant child might be the way to go. Do parents bear any kind of responsibility here? Again, but that why question hovers over of this whole thing?
9: Yeah, I mean, your daughter's poem just so beautifully demonstrated all of the obstacles, right, that a child has to overcome just to get to sit at the desk with a pencil to be ready to learn. And you know, the reason that she wasn't home and she had to take care of her baby sister Her mom was probably at work or you know we don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, The lights weren't on because the bill wasn't paid. There there are all these issues right and so um, doing uh, trying to solve this in a courtroom is just missing the mark completely I think and um, you know really looking at the school as a community hub rather than like when you, you know, when you cross that doorway, you have, we have to teach you um, math and English and, and those things are all really important. But if that kid isn't socially and emotionally like present, that's not gonna, you know, happen. So, so even keeping the kid in school, like getting the kid to school, you know, who knows if they're going to learn anything anyway
5: if they don't have their pencil and they're
9: punished right. for
5: that and all of
9: That's that. Part so of so. Just, to, just mm-hmm. to
5: address your question, I think mm-hmm. what, what we're all sort of talking about here is the idea that each child and each dynamic is different. Right. And so the idea that we're going to hit the parents with a misdemeanor, well, some parents might deserve that, mm-hmm. and some parents don't. Right. And so taking a look at the individual circumstances and not assuming that law enforcement or or um, punishment of this sort of the parent or of the child mm-hmm. or whomever um, is going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean I just I applaud the move toward more nuanced Looking well, at you know, And it's,
7: it's not just, I mean, we've been focused on the, the judicial portion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a mental health and a social worker portion of this particular approach as well. And I think that's what is going to address a lot of what your concerns were, is that it's not just a you know, heavy hammer, we
4: really have to go into the home and figure out what's going on. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Tom, staying with you, I, the Capitol High school principal, Jamie Holiday, had an interesting point here. A third factor is learned behavior, she said. Mm-hmm. Missing school in middle and elementary school becomes a habit that carries yeah. over into high school. I'd never heard that put that way before. That's interesting. Yeah. Getting to the why bit a little bit more, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah you know, a lot of those,
7: everybody always kind of looks at elementary school is the best because it is. You know, that's yeah. where you get a chance to get a lot of these habits in. That's, that's where right. you learn everything. As soon as you get to sixth grade, it's all vocational. That's right. So any bad habits you have in elementary school are exacerbated. In junior high and high school.
4: Did you have a quick thought on the magistrate court uh, uh, idea? If you got 20 seconds on that, does that seem like a good idea to you?
8: And I I really agree with Sophie. Mm. You know, just kind of piggyback on on her comments. I'm not sure the court system is where we need to deal with this emergency issue. I think there are so many things that we can do policy-wise in this community Mm -hmm. up front before it ever gets to that direction. By the time we get there,
4: that's right, we've lost. I want to thank you all for taking the time to research these topics next week for sure and sharing your opinions. Before we go, we want to remind you that the, to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, as well as our newest platform, Instagram.